Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter of Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 20 to the end of chapter 6. Our context is this, in the last audio, the first part of chapter 6, we discussed this famous passage in Hebrews about falling away, and we decided that what who was in danger of falling away was the Hebrew Christians who were in danger of falling away into apostasy, not into hell, not into a loss of their salvation, but into Judaism, falling back away into legalistic Judaism. And they were then exhorted at the end of that section to inherit the promises with faith and patience, to press on, in other words, and maintain their Christianity. And so in this section of Scripture, we'll call this the certainty of God's promises. With faith and patience, you can inherit the promises, and now we're going to find out why, because his promises are certain. They're not going to fail. We start with verses 13 and 14 of Hebrews 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater to swear by, he swore by himself, I will indeed bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. Now, the verse that the author is quoting is Genesis 22, verses 16 through 18. God says this, by myself I have sworn, there's where he swore to himself, by myself I have sworn, this is the Lord's declaration because you have done this thing and have not withheld your only son, that's when he offered Isaac up on uh, Mount Moriah, I will indeed bless you and make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore, that's where he says I will greatly multiply you, your offspring will possess the gates of your enemies and all the nations of the earth will be blessed by your offspring because you, you have obeyed my command. Now, this Abraham's blessings, the promises to Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant are usually divided into three sections, land, offspring, and blessings. This particular passage here, we have the offspring, numerous offspring, stars and sand they're compared to, and then they will bless all the nations. Now, these, these promises are repeated in other places. The land promise is not mentioned in this passage, but uh, in, in other passages... This is the only passages where only passage where God's promise to Abraham is accompanied with an oath by myself I have sworn. Now, using Abraham as an off, as an example of a person to whom a promise was made was perfect for the Hebrew Christians because Abraham was father Abraham, he was the father of the Jews. And so this would be quite impressive for them to hear this or or be reminded of this that when Abraham made that promise about land, offspring, and blessing, or at least by offspring and blessings, he swore by himself. Now, when God makes an oath, is he going to break it? Probably not. Now, this promise was to greatly multiply Abraham. That would include the physical seed of Israel, of course, but how about the spiritual seed? Because we know in Romans 4, Genesis 2, that Abraham's seed, including all those who believe that have the faith of Abraham, are also of Abraham's seed. And so the Hebrew Christians twice are the offspring of Abraham. They're physically the offspring of Abraham. They're also spiritually the offspring of Abraham. So we move now to verse 15, Hebrews 6. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. Abraham was 75 years old when the promise was made to him that he would have a seed, Isaac. He was 100 when it was fulfilled in Isaac. That's 25 years. Abraham waited 25 years to get that promise. And so, of course, the implication to the Hebrew Christian is, guys, you need to wait a little bit and endure a little bit, and you're going to get the promise. So just hold on. Abraham persevered. This is exactly what the author of the book 
wants the Hebrews to do to persevere. Hebrews 6.12 says this, So that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. Hebrews 6 verse 16 says this, For men swear by something greater than themselves, and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. Now why do people always swear by something greater than themselves? Well, that's to give some majesty to the promise made. You know, a lot of people take vain oaths. I swear by God, I'll not do this to you and that kind of stuff, which is disgusting. But people do that because the idea is you swear by something greater than you are, which will make the other person to whom you are swearing believe that you're going to keep your promise. As Adam Clark says, you swear to someone who has greater authority, who can take cognizance of the obligation and punish the breach of it. You hear people say, I swear on my Bible. That was when people had respect for the Bible. I swear on a stack of Bibles. I swear on my grandmother's grave. You know, I always try to pick something august and majestic. Well, God can't do that because there's nothing higher than he is. So he swore by himself. Now, notice that the author says, for men swear by something greater than themselves and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. The author never says anything about oaths being sinful because oaths are not sinful. False oaths, where you try to wiggle out of them like Jesus complained about in the Sermon on the Mount. I swear by, if you swear by the temple, you're not obligated. But if you swear by the gold of the temple, you are obligated. Apparently because you can't sell the temple. So therefore, so therefore, if you swear by the temple, you're not obligated. Some kind of silly casuistry of the Pharisees made them end up with that kind of stuff. Well, if you do that kind of stuff, no, Jesus condemned that. But just an ordinary oath which is obvious that everybody knows. When you take an oath in court, I swear I'm going to tell the truth. There's nothing wrong with that. You're not trying to fox anybody. You're trying to affirm that you're telling the truth. Here's a quote from Adam Clark quoting Dr. McKnight. This observation teaches us that both promissory oaths concerning things lawful and in our power and oaths for the confirmation of things doubtful, when required by proper authority and taken religiously, are liable under the gospel. In other words, it's all right to swear in court. Here's another quote from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. This passage shows, one, an oath is sanctioned even in the Christian dispensation as lawful. Two, that the limits to its use are that it only be employed where it can put an end to contradiction and disputes and for confirmation of a solemn promise. In other words, don't swear vainly and rashly. I swear to God I love you forever and that kind of nonsense. Don't do that. But if a solemn oath, now a confirming oath is perfectly okay. We go to verse 17, Hebrews 6. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. His unchangeable purpose. What was his unchangeable purpose? Here's a couple of options. One, the decree of God concerning salvation of his people by Christ. Gillen Clark suggests this. In other words, God says, hey, I'm going to save you. I'm going to save my people in Jesus. The gospel message, in other words, that's his unchangeable purpose to get people saved. Or it could be option number two, that the author is referring back to the promises made to Abraham. He wanted to show his unchangeable purpose to Abraham, that he would deliver to Abraham land, offspring, and blessing, which sort of overlaps with option one, because land, offspring, and blessing to the nations is salvation to the nations. So it's those promises sort of overlap. Those options sort of overlap. But anyway, God wants to show his unchangeable purpose for salvation his people, for land, offspring, and blessings to Abraham. He wanted to show it clearly to the heirs of the promise. And of course, the heirs of the promise, that's all the believing posterity of Abraham, probably. 
But there are several options as to who this heirs could be. It could be all the believing posterity of Abraham. That's believing Jews, believing Christians, the Gentiles of the nations of the earth in particular. Galatians 3.29 says, And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs according to the promise. Romans chapter 4 tells us the same thing. And so when God wants to make his unchangeable purpose even more clear, even more clearly, to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, it could be talking about the spiritual heirs, the believing posterity of Abraham, which of course we believe would include believing Jews as well, as well as believing Gentiles. That's option number one. It could be both the literal seed, the physical seed, the physical Jews, and the spiritual seeds together. Or it could just be the literal seed alone, referring back to Abraham's seed. It's not clear what the author meant. I suspect he's talking about both literal and spiritual seed. Why not? The Hebrews were both, and the author's trying to show to the Hebrew Christians that, hey, you got a promise, and that promise is the result of God's unchangeable purpose and is guaranteed with his oath. He swore by himself. So you're going to make it, guys. The persecution of the Jews, as bad as it is, is not going to destroy you. God is bigger than that persecution. Now, when he says, the author says that God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly, more clearly than what? Well, more clearly than if he had not sworn. He could have just left that, God could have left out that oath in those promises to Abraham. It still would have happened because it was God speaking. His word is true. But he gave an oath to make his promise more clear, clearer to the people he promised, made the promise to. Abraham made the promise to Abraham, made it more clear, not just his words, but an oath. Hebrews 6.18, so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. What are those two unchangeable things? Well, that's not exactly immediately obviously clear. Here's three options. John Gill says it's God's counsel, number one, and number two, God's oath. I don't think that's what it is. Here's the second option, God's oath to Abraham and God's oath by which the Messiah was made high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, Alfred, Albert Barnes suggests that two oaths, one to Abraham and one to the Messiah when he made Jesus the high priest of the church. I don't know where that comes from. Most people say that the two things are the promise that God made to Abraham and then the oath that backed up that promise that God made. Most expositors hold to that view, and I think that makes perfectly good sense to me. Ellicott, for example, believes that. So the two unchangeable things will take it to be God's promise and the, and the oath which backed up that promise. Through those two unchangeable things, and notice they're unchangeable, they're not gonna, he's not going to back out on it. It's impossible for God to lie. Well, now we have three things that are unchangeable. If you go back to verse 17... Verse 17 says, God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose. All right, that's the first thing that's unchangeable is God's purpose. The second thing that's unchangeable is God's promise. Verse 18, the two unchangeable things, one of which is his promise. That's the second unchangeable thing. And the third unchangeable thing is God's oath that he swore to back up that promise. His purpose, his promise, and his oath all do not change. Why? Because it is impossible for God to lie. Here's some scriptures that say that. Numbers 23:19. God is not a man who lies or a son of man who changes his mind. Does he speak and not act or promise and not fulfill? A rhetorical question. The answer is no, of course not. He doesn't speak and not act. John 17:17. 17, 17. Jesus says this in the high priestly prayer. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. Whatever you say, God, is true. That means the Bible is true. 
and hire critics who want to go around and call God a bully because of the Old Testament and all these blasphemous things that liberal hire critics like to do, they need to realize something. The Word of God is true. And Jesus took the Word of God as truth constantly. He quoted the Old Testament Scripture all the time. He said the Scripture will not be broken. He was not accommodating himself to the belief of the Pharisees. He believed it. He quoted Daniel as being real. He quoted Adam and Eve as being real. He believed the Old Testament Scriptures. But we are too smart for Jesus. And we got to say, well, no, no, that Scripture, that Old Testament Scripture was no good. Either is the New Scripture and look at the results in our culture today. If you're happy with what happens when you don't have a Bible, when you don't have the Word of God backing up your culture, you end up with anarchy and chaos. And that's the way people are living today, especially people's family lives. Anarchy, chaos, divorce, child abuse, alcoholism, ennui, purposelessness, nobody's happy. Titus 1-2, in the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began... So God can't lie. He can't lie if he, well, God would never want to lie, of course, but he couldn't lie. He can't lie because he is truth. Now, the author says in verse 18, we, it refers to, he identifies himself with the Hebrew Christians, and he says, we, which means he's a Hebrew Christian too, we have fled for refuge. What have the Hebrew Christians fled from by becoming Christians? From the sinking ship of this world? From the world of sin and selfishness? from the futility of self-righteousness by trying to keep the law, all of those things. The Hebrew Christians have fled from that, and the author's reminding them, you don't want to go back to that, do you? We have fled for refuge. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to seize the hope set before us. The hope set before the Christians, promise salvation rest in Christ. How about eternal rest in heaven? I don't know exactly what hope. The author was talking about, but it's good stuff compared to what the Jewish religion had for these people, which was getting toasted in Jerusalem when the whole city burned up in a few short years. A hope is a confident expectation of the future. you got a confident hope that you're going to heaven, that you're going to be with Jesus, that he's going to give you rest. That hope was, is said in verse 18, Hebrews 6, to be set before us. Set before us, Hebrew Christian, there's hope. Let's read Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 12. 1 through 2. Therefore, since we also have such a large cloud of witnesses surrounding us, there's your hope set before you, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that lies before us, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the source and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him endured a cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of God's throne. There's your hope, Jesus, at the end of the race. That's the hope that's set before us. We go to verse 19, Hebrews 6. We have this hope as an anchor for our lives, safe and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. This anchor that we have, Jesus, is appropriate nautical terminology. Hebrews 2.1 says that the Hebrew Christians were drifting away. We must therefore pay even more attention to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. Again, this apostasy was not a sudden thing. They were just kind of getting weak and weary and falling off one by one gradually. And so they needed to stop drifting. Well, what keeps a boat from drifting? It's an anchor. All right, so following the metaphor here, the author says we have an anchor. It's for our lives, safe and secure, which means this anchor can make our lives safe and secure. The boat's not going to float off and founder on a rock anywhere. This anchor enters the inner sanctuary. What's that? The inner sanctuary is... The Old Testament's holy of holy, holy of holies in the Old Testament, and, the, and it was a type of heaven in the New Covenant. 
The type is the 10 by 10 by 10 cubic Holy of Holies in the tabernacle. And the fulfillment, of course, was in heaven. So when the author says that the hope that we have of Jesus is behind the curtain, anchored in the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, that means basically our hope is anchored in heaven. And that means ain't nothing going to happen to you, even if the nasty persecuting Jews take your property or take your life, you're going to be with Jesus in heaven. So hold on. This hope enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. A lot of times you hear people say say this using the King James, I have a hope behind the veil. I'm anchored in the veil, behind the veil. The veil, of course, is that curtain that was hung between the holy place, the 10 by 10 by 20 place where the showbread and the candlestick were. You then right at the at the doorway to the Holy of Holies where the golden altar was, you'd walk through that curtain there to get into the Holy of Holies. That's what the curtain is. Holman Christian Study Bible Translation. Veil a lot of translations have. So appropriately the author is using Hebrew terminology to show to talk to us about the heavenly reality that we have, a hope. So the hope is the anchor, the hope in Christ is the anchor stuck there behind the veil in heaven where God ain't going to let us go. He's not going to let us drift anywhere. Let's see. Let's listen to this Hebrew, this nautical analogy, the way Adam Clark puts it, quote, at last the ship, at last she gets near the port, but the tempest continues. The water is shallow, broken and dangerous, and she cannot get in. In order to prevent her being driven to sea again, she heaves out her sheet anchor, which she has been able to get within the pierhead by means of her boat. Though she could not herself get in, then swinging at the length of her cable, she rides out the storm in confidence, knowing that her anchor is sound, the ground good in which it is fastened, and the cable strong. Though agitated, she is safe, though buffeted by wind and tide. She does not drive. By and by, the storm ceases. The tide flows in. Her sailors take to the capstan, wear the ship against the anchor, which still keeps its bite or hold, and she gets safely into port. Well... Notice Adam Clark calls the boat a she. He couldn't do that today if somebody accused him of being sexist, some moron in the progressive secular culture. But what he's talking about is using that as an analogy of our lives. And then doesn't that sound like the typical life? Have you ever noticed that when people talk about their life on earth, there's always mention of trouble, tempest, turmoil? Folks, we are living in a war zone. There ain't nothing easy about living life on this planet. It's It's really, really rough. And... You want to get through it okay? You better be in Jesus' boat. That's all I can say. You better be anchored in heaven or you might get shipwrecked. Let's go to Hebrews 6 verse 20. We'll finish it up. Jesus has entered there. That means into heaven, into the Holy of Holies, the heavenly Holy of Holies, God's throne room. Jesus has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Why did he enter there? In order to be the Christian's high priest. Hebrews 4.16 says this, Therefore let us approach the throne of grace with boldness, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us at the proper time. We can approach God in the Holy of Holies in, in heaven. We can do that because Jesus, our high priest, is approached first. He's the forerunner, it says here in this verse. Jesus entered heaven as a high priest before his believers so enter heaven. He was there first. And he's a priest forever. That contrasts with the Old Testament high priest of the order of Aaron because the Old Testament high priest died and therefore they could not serve forever as a high priest. But Jesus never dies. So he's always our, our, our high priest interceding for us with the Father, taking care of us. 
He's of the order of Melchizedek. Now, we already talked about Melchizedek in the previous chapter, chapter 5. Let's read a couple of verses from chapter 5. Hebrews 5, 6. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Verse 10, chapter 5. He was declared, he, Jesus, was declared by God a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. What is, what is it about Melchizedek that makes Jesus a high priest in his order? Of course, Melchizedek was some kind of a priest that was offering sacrifices to God. He must have had some notion of the one God because the Old Testament revelation hadn't happened yet. But you recall the story. Abraham had just gone off and whipped up on some Babylonian type or people in the Mesopotamian Valley, some raiders who came down and stole his nephew Lot from Sodom. Abraham chased him up north. I think he got him up north of the Sea of Galilee, if I remember correctly. But anyway, he won that battle against these kings, and he came back, and he distributed the spoils of the battle to his allies. And Melchizedek, he gave a tenth of the spoils to Melchizedek, who was king of Salem, later Jerusalem. And Melchizedek had no beginning and no end because there was no genealogy. Nobody knew anything about him, where he came from, where he went. And so he was the perfect type of a high priest, one, because he received tithes. And since the Levites were descendants of Abraham, that means the Levitical priests were giving tithes to Melchizedek, and the lesser gives tithes to the greater. That means the Levitical priesthood was lesser than the order of Melchizedek, which means Jesus was a greater priest than the Levitical priests were. So that's what it means to be the order of Melchizedek, briefly. There's an Old Testament scripture that talks about Jesus as a priest like Melchizedek. Psalm 110, verse 4, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back forever. You are a priest like Melchizedek. There's a messianic psalm predicting Jesus being a priest like Melchizedek fulfilled here in the book of Hebrews. Ladies and gentlemen, we have now finished Hebrews chapter 6. In Hebrews chapter 7, we will take up this idea of Jesus being a priest after the order of Melchizedek. The author goes into great detail about that. That will be in our next audio, which I hope you will tune in to listen to. And I hope you enjoyed this one. 